that we, uh, we get to hear from you again through your word. We ask that it would go out effectively to everyone here, even through me and even in spite of me, that it would convict us where we need it, comfort us where we need it, cause us to love you. Amen. Let's uh, turn our Bibles to Psalm 2. That's what we're going to be considering today, Psalm 2. And I'll read that for you in its entirety. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's an amazing and powerful passage. And if we think about it, since mankind came onto the scene, he's been in rebellion against God really in one form or another. From lying to lusting to murder, man rebels. That's what we do. And we can see the effects of that rebellion on the news each day that's undeniable. It seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Some may claim to not rebel against God because, hey, we don't believe in God or I don't believe in God. But I would say that's insurrection. That is sin against God because he expects us to believe in him and obey him. All rebellion, regardless of size or scope, is a demonstration of self-will against God. It's putting self above God. How does God respond to that? What are we to do about that? And I'm glad you asked, because Psalm 2 has the answer for us. Now, in the stream of progressive revelation throughout our history, we're much further along now than when the psalm was authored. Um... Psalm 2 was partially fulfilled in God's earthly king back when it was being written, but it's ultimately fulfilled in God's eternal king who will come to rule the earth. He's going to come again to rule the earth. And so it's in that ultimate fulfillment that we're going to place most of our focus today. So Psalm 2 provides four scenes of God's sovereignty over man's rebellion so that we might repent and live in wisdom. And then anybody who is looking for an outline, I have one for you. Verses 1 through 3 is the revolt. 4 through 6, the response. 7 through 9, the reign, and that's not rain like from the sky, water, that's the reign of the king. Uh, and verses 10 through 12, the reflection. The reflection. The opening stanza of Psalm 2 features a frightening scene of powerful pagan rulers who are plotting against and trying to overthrow God. Man here wants to be the maker. He wants to be the maker. Let's look at the revolt, verses 1 through 3. It's a picture of man's foolish rebellion. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? The question of why here is emphatic. The psalmist is shocked 
at the nations. He's shocked and indignant because the nations are endeavoring in a futile rebellion against God. Now, a good question would be, who exactly are these nations, and then why the uproar? Who are they, and why the uproar? The word for nations here in the Hebrew is goyim. Uh, That refers to Gentile nations largely, but it can also uh, refer to Israel. For example, in Isaiah 1.4 and uh, 9.2 and 49.7, Israel is identified as the sinful goy, which would just be the singular of goyim, uh, the sinful nation. So nations can consist of all people who are God's enemies, but in this context, the psalmist is referring to the Gentile nations who are coming against his people, against Israel. Nations are in an uproar, it says. That's that's a restless, violent behavior. That's a stirring around. That's a state of rage that they're continuously in here. The nations are barbarously bitter and diabolically devilish. That's their state. Uh, the nations are up to nothing good here. The psalmist then elaborates for us in uh, verse 1 again. He says, And the people's devising a vain thing. The people's are devising a vain thing. As a whole, as a way of life, the people of the nations are living in a state of violent rage. And in that rage, they are devising. They're, they're plotting. It's a conspiracy. It's a full-on rebellion. They're planning. They're meditating on plans and becoming progressively devious in those plans and in that devising. They're, they're working themselves up into a lather. They are fixated on rebellion. And if you remember, a couple of months ago, we went through Psalm 1. So in contrast to the blessed man in Psalm 1, verse 2, who's fixed on God's law and devising, same word, righteousness, these people are fixed on breaking that law and devising unrighteousness. And the psalmist identifies that action saying it's a vain thing. It's vain to do this. This devising, this plotting, this rebellion is empty. It goes nowhere. It can't produce any advantage, and it has no benefits. This is madness and a vain thing because the rebellion will never succeed. Now, every, excuse me, every uh, rebellion has leadership. So who specifically is leading this futile rebellion? Look at verse 2. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. Kings here are world rulers leading the rebellion. These are the leaders of nations who despise God. And that's not so strange to us. Human history is replete with, these exam- with examples of these kinds of men. We have Nimrod, Nebuchadnezzar, Pilate, Herod, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-un, and even many of our own politicians. And the list could go on and on and on from there. These are the people leading this rebellion. And the text says they are taking their stand. They're taking their stand. It could be also translated, they are setting themselves, or they set themselves. This paints the very real picture of these kings continuously lining up, like on a battlefield, opposing, they're they're an opposing army uh, to do battle against God. They're always at the ready to resist and rebel. And it says their stand in verse 2, their stand. It's a collective effort. It's a collective effort. And in addition to these national leaders setting themselves up against God, verse 2 also says the rulers take counsel together. Who are the rulers? Who are these other players? These are the political leaders of the earth. These are the dignitaries would be a literal translation. This is a worldwide predisposition. You have the kings, you have the rulers, you have the people. You have all the representatives of the world system. And it's a plot, and they're standing against the Lord. And in that plotting, they, the text says, they take counsel. They take counsel together. These kings and rulers are receiving counsel from one another. They're giving and receiving constantly. And it's about how to rebel against and overthrow God. That's their M.O. That's the council. And they are together, a community effort, 
unified in unrighteousness. And it, it might seem hard for us to visualize this, to visualize one common goal for the world leaders, especially today, as crazy as things are. But let me assert that world rulers have always been and will always be united in insurrection against the Lord. If you, were, if you will remember, in Genesis 3, at the fall, Adam and Eve, the only two people on the world, in the world, the world rulers, rebelled against God collectively. The whole human race fell after that. Um, a little bit in the future, they and their offspring populate the earth. That turns into a rebellion against God. He wipes them out in the flood, if you remember that. And then there's eight people that live, Noah and his family, seven of his family. They repopulate the earth again. Genesis 11, there is the Tower of Babel where all these people of the earth are in one spot. God says, no, I want you to spread out and subdue the earth. They say, no, we're going to stay in one spot here. We're going to make a name for ourselves, not your name, but our name. And in fact, we're going to build a tower to you. We're going to come get you. And so what happened? The Lord judged them, confused their language, spread them out across the earth. Then we see later on redemptive history. We see the pinnacle at the crucifixion where the world rulers, both the Jews and the Gentiles, crucified Jesus. They came together for that, where, they, where otherwise they hated each other. They're doing it now. We see that every day now. And they're going to do it in the future. Let's, uh, let's take a quick look at this. Revelation chapter 16 the future of man's rebellion. 16 and uh, starting in verse 13. It's always been, it's going on now, it's going to keep going, this rebellion. Chapter 16 of Revelation, starting in verse 13. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, which is the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out, of the kings, go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for war of the great day of God the Almighty. And look at verse 16. And they, that's these demon spirits, gathered them, which is the wicked kings and the rulers, together to the place which is called, in Hebrew, Armageddon, or Armageddon. Even in the future, man is rebelling against the Lord and trying to make war against him. Nothing brings rebels together like hatred for the true God. That's what brings people together. They may manifest that hatred in different ways, but it's the same hatred. It's the same hatred. I, some people might say, well, I don't hate God like this. I, I have no problem with the idea of, of God. Really. James 4.4 4 and 1 John 2.15 say that if you love the world or the things in the world, you're an adulterous person towards the Lord. You're a liar. And the love of God is not in you. That makes you a rebel against the Lord. Verse 2, the rulers take counsel together against a specific God. Not just the idea of God, a specific God. It says against, in verse 2 again, against Yahweh, back in Psalm 2, against Yahweh and his anointed. Against Yahweh and his anointed. The world is against the God of Israel and his anointed one. It's a specific target. Anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, or in English, Messiah. That's the anointed one. Messiah is used 39 times in the Old Testament of kings, priests, and prophets, but here and in Daniel 9, it's a clear reference to the Messiah, the singular Messiah, the real one, God's Son. Moreover, in Acts 4, 25 through 28, the apostles quote this specific verse and identify God's anointed as Jesus, as Jesus this is the specific target of man's rebellion, Jesus Christ. That's who they hate. 
You can talk about God all day long, right? With anybody. Because I can make God whoever I want. But the moment you mention Jesus Christ, see how far you get. The conversation's over. It gets cut off. This is who they're against, Jesus Christ. Someone might say, I don't hate Jesus like that. I don't, I don't hate him like that. Don't believe in him, but I have no problem if someone else does. 1 John 4.20 tells us, how can you say you love God but you hate your brother? How can you say that? That makes you a liar. How can you hate your brother you can see yet love God who you can't see. Those two don't go together. If you hate your brother you can see, you also hate God who you can't see. If you hate the lesser, you're going to hate the more. Now the psalmist is going to let us hear the thrust of this counsel that they're taking together. Verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart. Notice the plural pronoun us. The nations rage, the peoples devise. The kings stand against, rulers counsel against, and let us tear apart. The picture can't be any more clear. The world is speaking with one voice. This is their heart direction. It's unanimous. They want to tear apart God's fetters. They want to continuously and violently rip off or wrench off or tear into these fetters. They want them gone. They want to be free. They want to free themselves from God at any cost. Get him away from me. Get us away from him. Now, the choice of the word fetter is very telling. Um, a fetter was a restraint that confined or restricted freedom. And it's something used to tie down or restrict, listen, a prisoner. A prisoner. This twisted thinking and therefore twisted counsel sees God as an unjust prison master from which they must gain independence. Furthermore, verse 3 says they want to cast away their cords from us. They want to rip the fetters off, throw the cords away, be gone with them. These people are desperate to be free from Yahweh. To them, it's critical that they are self-ruling and independent from him. Get me away from him. And isn't that exactly what we see in our culture today? That's exactly what we see. Nothing's changed. The rebellion hasn't changed, just the packaging of that rebellion. In our culture, autonomy is prized, independence is prized, and rebellion against the system makes us a hero, doesn't it? Does that make us a hero? It's what we see. In their minds here, the cords that bind them to God are completely unacceptable. These could have been cords of love, but no, they're seen as cords of lament instead. To the world's people, being under God's rule is like being a wild animal with its paw caught in a trap. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but wild animals, a lot of them that I've seen, with their paw caught in a trap long enough, will become desperate enough to where they will gnaw their own paw off and able to get out of that trap and just travel a little ways and die from blood loss. The world is desperate to be free from God, even if that means gnawing their own foot off. Doesn't matter. Get me away from him. This counsel in which they engage is indicative of people that meditate on being free from God day and night, in contrast to Psalm 1, how the blessed man meditated on being with God and in his law and his word day and night. I want to make a really important observation here. The issue is not lack of belief in God. That's not the issue. That's not mentioned anywhere in, this, in, the, in the text. It's hatred and rebellion against Christ's lordship. That's the issue. The issue is lack of submission to God, not lack of belief in God. That's not it. Romans 1.18 would even back that up. We suppress that truth and unrighteousness. We know the truth, but we suppress it. The Jews, speaking of Jesus in Luke 19, 14, said, we do not want this man ruling over us. We don't want it. And there you have it. There you have it. This is why they rebel, and that's why people still rebel. 
This is what the world takes counsel against or counsel about, being free from Christ. That's the rebellion. How do we keep from doing the things we like? That's what they want to know. How do we, how do we get what we want without the consequences? How does that happen? And how can anyone, how can anyone claim to be any different if the answer in your mind to those questions is to get Christ out of the picture? How can we be any different? We can't. Listen closely. If Christ is in your way, then you aren't Christian, no matter what you think or say. You're a rebel. That's what you are. The scene changes to behind the scenes. We go from the revolt to the response in verses 4 through 6. The response. Look at verse 4 with me. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And this is God's response to man's rebellion. You have man's violent rebellion on the earth. Meanwhile, at the same time, while all that's going on, God sits on his throne in heaven. God's sovereign and eternal purposes are unaffected by man's attempts at insurrection. God isn't worried about man's rebellion. In fact, God's so alarmed that he, quote, sits, he sits, he remains seated. He doesn't even bother getting up. That's not a threat to him. And in an act of divine derision, he laughs, it says in verse 4, and he scoffs. Adonai, which is where they get the Lord from, means the master, is scoffing at the scoffers. Why? Why is that? Because he knows their days are numbered, he's the one that numbered them. He numbered their days. Turn over to Psalm 37. Let's take a look at this. Brief look. Psalm 37. Uh, 13, but actually we'll start in verse 12. Psalm 37, verse 12. He says here, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord, Adonai, laughs at him. Why? Why does he laugh? Because he sees this he sees his day is coming. That's talking about judgment. The Lord has numbered their days. He's put a fixed stopping point in their rebellion. He knows when that rebellion is going to be over, and he's going to judge that. Men may think they are masters of their own destiny, but the real master, Adonai, sits in heaven and ridicules their puny, rebellious efforts. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 2. We'll look at verse 5. And this is heavy stuff. I know that. It ought to be. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. So after the mocking and laughter from God, there's divine fury. God's holiness moves him to judge sinners. And he speaks with words and actions. He will do it, and he will rebuke his enemies. Psalm 7, actually, says that God has wrath toward the wicked every day. How dare we tell them God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. When, God, when Psalm 7, God's already said, that he has wrath towards the wicked every day. God will judge and destroy his enemies. There is nowhere to hide from God. You can't escape his judgment. Let's take another quick look. Psalm 21. Psalm 21, verses 8 and 9. And this is, this is here um, praising, for, praising the Lord for future victories that will come through him and what that, that will happen. Verses 8 and 9, speaking of the Lord, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your hand will, your right hand will find out those who hate you. 
you will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. That's judgment. What else could that be? It's judgment. And that judgment is so complete, by the way. In verse 10, it says, Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Total devastation wiped out. None of God's enemies will be left. They can't even keep the family lines going because they've been wiped out. I want to make a distinction here, helpful distinction. God's anger is not like ours. Yes, he does judge because he's holy, but his anger is not like ours. Our anger, the vast majority of the time, leads to sin and rash decisions and emotional upheavals. That's, that's, what, that's what we do. God's anger, though, is perfectly balanced with his holy and righteous character. God's anger is always right for him to have because he's always holy. He's always holy. And holiness hates sin. Holiness hates sin. Back to Psalm 2. Back to Psalm 2. What's the effect here of his anger in Psalm 2? The effect of his anger and his rebuke towards the nations is their terror. It terrifies them. Literally, he will make them tremble. He will horrify them. They, they will be made out of their senses. The Lord's fury has shaken and will shake, it, will shake the wicked to the core. Now, a question we would have to ask is, what does the Lord do that's so terrifying to these nations? To the nations, that's where we will look in verse 6. Verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Or we could say, but as for me, I have set, or I have consecrated, I have set apart my king. I've set apart my king. The kings of the earth are too late. It's already done. God's king has been enthroned. Notice he says, I have. That's past tense, done deal, game over. The kings are lining up their armies against God, but he has already set his king to rule in Zion, it says, which is Jerusalem's most prominent mountain. And it's the most prominent because God has designated it my holy mountain or my set-apart mountain or my consecrated mountain. And 2 Samuel 7, we won't turn there, but that Davidic covenant tells us that the consecration of Zion as God's dwelling place uh, was part of his unbreakable promise to establish that Davidic dynasty out of which the king that we're reading about here, the Messiah, would come and reign. So you have God's set-apart king on his set-apart mountain. Both are rock solid, and he will judge his enemies. This is conveying Christ's eternal sovereign, sovereignty and his earthly rule. Man's vain rebellion is answered by Yahweh's powerful pronouncement that he's already set his king in authority, and that is exactly what terrifies them so much, that Christ is sovereign and he's in control. That's what terrifies them. Worst case scenario, nightmare come true. Your rebellion's going to fail. You will be judged. Christ and not his enemies rule this planet. That's what terrifies them. God has said it. It is the reality. It will not change. We have to ask ourselves, since this is true, does the thought of this bother me? Does this bother me? Or am I blessed by it? Do I want Christ set over and above me? Do I want that? Um, is, is it thy will be done, or is it my will be done? Which one is it? Which one is it? That'll let us know which side we're on. Look at number three, the rain in verses seven through nine. The rain. And this is a picture of Christ's dominion. That which the Father has 
decreed, the Son will execute. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I don't know if you've thought about this, but this is an amazing thing. In verse 3, we got an inside view of what the nation's council about, what they're doing. But now we get an inside view of what the father said to the son. Listen, before our reality, as we know it, was created. This is an eternity past. Here the son repeats the conversation within the Trinity and tells us why he has the right to rule. And it's because the father has an eternity past decreed, it says, to him. Literally, my son, that's why. It's his God-given right to rule because of the relationship to God the father as God the Son. He's of the same essence, the same substance, the same nature, the same being as the Father. He's equal to the Father, and it has been eternally decreed that part of his function within the Trinity is to rule. Because of his very nature and his function within the Trinity, Christ is to rule. So there's always been this eternal decree but there was a specific point in time, namely the resurrection, where Christ publicly demonstrated the eternal decree. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. Now let's turn to, in Acts 13, let's turn to Acts 13. This is exactly what the apostle Paul is talking about. Thirteen verse thirty-three. Acts thirteen verse thirty-three. He says in verse thirty-three, God has fulfilled this promise. Wait a second, what promise? Verse thirty-two, the promise of good news. Okay, what's that talking about? Verse thirty, about the raising of Christ. Verse thirty-four, the raising of Christ. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it was also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The resurrection was a climax of Paul's message and the ultimate proof that Jesus was Messiah. This is the temporal outworking of the, deter- of the eternal decree. You can turn back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And he says, goes on to say in verse 7, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. And this is where Some like to distort this as proof that Christ is a created being. See, he's been begotten. But we already saw that he's eternal. He's always been God. He's always been there. He is God. This phrase is simply an ancient way of talking about a king's coronation. Jesus, who was always God, was always God, but was supremely glorified when he rose from the dead. That was the supreme evidence, the supreme demonstration of the eternal decree. In fact, in Romans 1.4, Paul, speaking of Christ, says, he was declared the Son of God with power by or as a result of the resurrection from the dead. The Son perfectly executed in time what the Father decreed in eternity past, and its proof was publicly declared at his resurrection. Mission complete. God's done it. The rebels have no chance here. God, Christ is God. He rules. And it was proven at the resurrection. And even Peter in Acts 2, verse 23, says that these rebels uh, were used by God as part of that plan. They're the ones who put God to death, and he even ordained that. He's even in control of that. He put Christ to death. He's in control of that. Christ is in complete control, not these rebels. Furthermore, Christ tells us the Father promised him a rich legacy in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. As your possession. This is ultimately speaking of Christ's universal administration. Christ is both high priest and king. This is his administration, his office. 
It says, ask of me, gives the sense of, ask me to give you and I'll say yes. Or ask me to give you the lands of the earth and I will do it. Just ask. This is prayer within the Trinity between from the Son to the Father, and that's not so different. We already have seen that before. We've all read John 17, the high priestly prayer, where the Son prays to the Father. The high priest prays. The high priest prays. This is the Father lovingly bestowing the function and office of great high priest on his Son in eternity past, before anything was created. Christ, the great high priest, need only ask the Father, and he will do it. So the Father is promising the Son universal dominion and authority over the nations, even the nations that rebel against him. This is his inheritance, it says. And one commentator puts this really nicely. It says to him, speaking of Christ, the heathen have been given for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession that he may rule without distinction from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. There's not one square inch of this earth that Christ doesn't own. By implication, there's not one square inch of this earth that these rebels do own. This is his planet. Or there's not one square inch of this earth any of us own. It's not ours, it's his. The text says the very ends of the earth are his to permanently possess and rule. I want to make a little just kind of side note here. This possession by the Son is being progressively realized even now as more and more people are coming to him for salvation. That's the not yet aspect of his kingdom where his kingdom is advanced through the salvation from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. And this inheritance will be fully transferred to him during his reign and rule in the millennial kingdom, which is, which is the not yet aspect of his kingdom where Christ will come back. He will reign here in the, in, in, in the body, physically, on earth, in the Middle East, in Israel, in, Jeruz, in Jerusalem. He will be there in his millennial kingdom. A good question to ask since he's going to be doing that. How will he rule this possession of his? How will he rule that? Look at verse 9 with me. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Verse 8 pictures Christ's priestly office and function. This pictures his kingly office and function. This is about divine judgment. His first act as ruler will be to destroy his enemies. This is the administration of his universal dominion being meted out across the earth. The Son is inheriting the nations to judge them, not to be their friend, to judge them. His reign over the enemies will, in fact, be so severe that it will be like a potter who, who smashes warped vessels to pieces with an iron rod because they're useless. There's nothing good for them. They don't mean anything because they're not... They're not acting the way that, they're not functioning the way that they should function. It's not dissimilar to Psalm 1-4 where the wicked are like chaff, which the wind drives away, insignificant. Like chaff, like smashed pottery. This isn't meek and mild Jesus coming back in the manger. This is the returning and conquering king of all creation. It's different this time. And his enemies will be destroyed. And let's take a look at this very real picture of this of breaking and shattering in Revelation 19. This is what's going to happen in more detail when Christ comes back on earth to rule. Revelation 19, as you're turning there, I'll just kind of give you some context. At this time in earth's history, it's been absolutely devastated by judgment after judgment from God. There's been the bowl judgments. There's been the trumpet judgments. There's been the environment has been wrecked. The ecosystem's been destroyed. The, most of the food on earth has been destroyed. There's famine everywhere. There's pestilence. Um, 
Most of the Earth's potable water has been toxified. Most of Earth's population has been wiped out. There's demons on the Earth actually physically going around and torturing men, making them wish they would die, yet the word says that they, death is not found. There is just cataclysm going on, uh, the, like the likes that, of what this earth has not seen, and now Christ is returning to earth, his second coming at the very end of all of this. He's going to administer judgment upon his enemies, like he said he would do. Let's look at verse 19, verse 15 through 21. Speaking of Christ, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. In other words, he has the power to kill, and he does it with a word out of his mouth, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, speaking of swift and righteous judgment, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty on his robe, and on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords, which speaks about his absolute sovereignty over the nations. Verse 17, John says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. That's the carcass cleanup crew that he's calling in here. So that you may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of the mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled, here they go, assembled, even in the future, still assembling, to make war against him who sat upon the horse, and against his army. And just by the way, side note, his army are all the believers who have come back with him to witness this judgment. And that was, we see that in verse 14. Verse 20, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped him, those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest, that's the rest of their followers, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Every single sinner on the face of the planet will have been executed at this time. This is supposed to be the Battle of Armageddon, but this is an unparalleled holocaust. It's an execution. It's not even a battle. The Lord wipes them out totally. And this is the fate of all who disobey Christ. All who rebel against Christ's, against Christ's rule will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. All of them. If the leaders are thrown in, so are the followers. And it's not just for the people on these pages. It's not just for them. It's not just for this guy over here or this gal over here. This is for all people who rebel against the king. We're not just reading a fairy tale. This is real. And the question is this, why rebel when this is your end? Why rebel? That's madness. It's madness. Makes no sense. Rebels don't go to a better place. Doesn't happen. It is the lake of fire and brimstone. Turn back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We will look at the fourth point, the reflection. Fourth and last point. This is a call for the rebel nations to think carefully. Think carefully. Reflect upon your position. Look what's coming for you. Think about this. Think about it. Be wise. It's a call to wisdom. Do you really want to stay where you are? Is that what you want? Do you really want to stay where you are? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. The Lord's calling these kings to consider what he just said. Because my king is enthroned, 
because he owns the earth and all in it, because your rebellion is doomed, because, listen, you are going to die now, right now, this second, today. Do what you haven't done before. Show discernment. Act in a wise way. Act like a wise person. Show that you understand the words I'm saying to you. Show it more specifically. Verse 10 again. Take warning, O judges of the earth. In general, be wise. Specifically, take warning. Take the warning I'm giving you. Think about this. He could, God could squash these rulers like a bug, yet he shows them mercy by warning them. His first act is mercy. What we read about the future is what will happen if you don't heed the mercy, uh, the warning. And the warning could be translated, let yourself be instructed, let yourself be rebuked, let yourself be admonished. So what that you're admonished and rebuked? You're still alive. Better to happen now. Let yourselves become wise by receiving my instruction. And you're hearing it today. Receive it. You thought you were wise in your counsel before, but you were vain and foolish. Now here's some real wisdom. Here's some real wisdom. Heed counsel from me. Don't be a fool. Learn from me. Be my disciple. Repent because sin brings death. Sin brings death. Repentance brings life. Listen, be wise. Repent now because my instruction will lead to your life. Don't lose your life because you are being a fool. You were rejecting me before. Receive me now. Receive me now. Receive knowledge of me and knowledge about me. And I don't want to make, I don't want us to make this mistake. I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that this is just meek and lowly Jesus who is begging you because he just loves you so much. You're so worth it. No, make no mistake about this. This is a call to total surrender by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what this is. And yet, within that call, there is mercy and grace mixed. It's mixed in with it. The army of mankind is lined up against God, but it's too late. He's already won. And he's mercifully offering his terms, listen, to people who want to kill him. They want to kill him, but he's offering them terms of surrender. So what are God's terms of surrender? What are his terms? Here is the short answer. Real religion. Those are his terms. Real religion. And real religion consists not just of true knowledge, but also right doing. Right doing. Be wise. Be instructed. Receive real saving knowledge. That the Messiah is king, not you. Then go do it. Okay? Do what? Do what? Real service and real submission. Look in verse 11 with me. Real service, real submission. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Worship means to serve. To serve. And not just serve, but serve with reverence. Serve with profound respect for the king and humility. And Here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Humbly serve and respect who? Who do we do that to? The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What? Jesus Christ. You want me? You want me to worship who? Who? Much as it is today, this... This would have been shocking to these Gentile kings who were hearing this. You mean no more Baal, no more Dagon, no more more Zeus? Does that sound unfamiliar to us? Let Let me make this more current. What? You mean 
No more control over my own time. No more control over my health. No more control over my wealth or who or how I worship, if even, if even at all. I don't have control over that anymore. Do you mean I have to change my religion? Yes. Yes, that is what that means. Do you mean I have to stop grasping for my way in favor of God's way? Is that what you mean? Yes. Yes, that's exactly, yes, that's exactly what he's talking about. You stop worshiping anything in place of God, including yourself, and start worshiping the Son of God. And, and not only do you do that as an act, you do it from the heart, from the heart. Real religion is serving Christ with profound respect and joy in the heart, regardless of what you have to give up. It's unconditional surrender. He's, he's demanding. And let me tell you, if it's not unconditional surrender on your part, Christ isn't interested in your surrender. He's not interested. He, just, he doesn't take anything he can get. It's unconditional surrender. Because he's God. Because he's exceedingly worth it. And because he's commanding it. We are to let reverence and humility be mingled with our joyful service because He's a great God, and we are puny creatures. He's the high one. We are the low ones. Don't get that twisted, as we often do. Fear and joy are linked to the true worship of Christ. They were being called to humbly serve the Lord with joy and fear. So are you, and so am I. It's no different today. We are commanded to find our greatest joy in Christ's rule, not in rebellion against it. That's not it. And we're to do this with complete submission. Complete submission. Verse 12. Verse 12. Verse 12 says in the first part, do homage to the Son. Do homage to the Son. We'll keep it there. What does that mean? Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Bow yourself low before the Son. This is a kiss of an inferior party subjecting himself to the superior party. This is a picture of religious adoration and political subjection to the king. Why do we say political? Because these are the rulers of the earth that are ruling wrong upon the earth underneath the true king. And this is, listen, a genuine call from God to the rebel. It's genuine. He's saying, come and live. Repent. Worship me. Serve me with joy and humility. And live. Live. Why wouldn't we kiss the son? He's already kissed us with his mercy. Instead of your immediate death for sinning, he's warning you. You are still breathing. You sinned, but you're still breathing. Let me ask you, why did you wake up this morning? Why did you drive here safely? Why do you get to hear this message? Why is that? Because God has kissed you with his mercy. That's why. No other reason. That's why. God expects us to submit to him and have a right relationship with him, and at the same time, he is the one initiating. He's the one initiating. God's the one seeking. He's seeking your repentance and true worship so that, listen, you can be saved, so that you can live. Respond to that. Respond to that. Don't reject that. Respond to that. Turn from your rebellion and honor the Son appropriately. How you, how you treat the Son is indicative of what you think about the Father. You worship the Son, you worship the Father. You reject the Son, you reject the Father. You can't say, I love God, yet hate Jesus. Doesn't work. You're lying. God's made it clear. Submit your will or there, or there are consequences. 
Look in verse 12 with me again. Verse 12. That he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. The Lord offers here a second warning. If you spurn his grace and mercy, he will become angry and you will die. You will perish in the way. Okay, what way? What way is he talking about there? Psalm 1-6, the second half of that. The way of the wicked will perish. The way is the wicked way he's talking about. It's the way of the scoffer in Psalm 1-1 and the rebel in Psalm 2. The scoffers of Psalm 1 and the rebel of are the rebels of Psalm 2, and they will perish because of their wicked ways. This is God saying this. It's not an empty threat. It's a divine promise. That's one of the purposes for submitting to the Lord. That's the warning. You're to submit to the king because if you don't, God's wrath may soon be kindled, says verse 12, or his heart will become quickly hot. Quickly hot. It gives the sense that if you don't submit, if you don't repent, you will die suddenly or unexpectedly, that is, before the normal time, as a result of God's anger, he will snuff you out. The warning, submit to the Son or you will die. And God is gracious enough in that to warn us ahead of time. That's the negative consequence. But there's also a positive consequence in verse 12. Look in verse 12 with me. It says, How blessed are those who take refuge in him. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. If you take refuge in him, there will be grace. The positive consequence is God's blessing. Take refuge in him. God's blessing. You will be blessed. That's true happiness. There's redemptive favor from God. There's overwhelming joy and contentment in the Lord given to you. You will no longer be an enemy of God, but a loved child of God. If you take refuge in him, there will be grace, there will be mercy for you. Everything we read in the future won't apply to you. God's judgment won't apply to you. And this phrase, take refuge in him, appears 24 times in the book of Psalms. Let me ask you, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? One time, but 24 times in the Psalms alone, take refuge in him is mentioned, and it always, it's always used of, of God as the protector, the protector. It speaks of God's covering, God's caring for, or God's helping. God's no longer your prosecutor. He's now your protector, and that is the blessing. You get God for repenting and taking your refuge in him. You get God. You will have Christ. He will have you. He will be your source of greatest joy and worship. You don't have to turn there. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, listen carefully, truly, truly, the same Jesus that comes back to judge is saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. What a blessed promise of grace and mercy to those who submit their ways to him. question now is, it's a lot, and it's heavy. What do we do with that? How does this personally apply to me? How does this personally apply? Well, in any congregation, there's bound to be both believers and unbelievers, right? Any congregation, there's believers and unbelievers. If you have taken refuge in Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's an encouragement. There's a few of them. You are sons and daughters of the King. You're His. He's yours. You've received His love his mercy, his grace. You've been given eternal life and real hope. Rejoice in that. Take confidence in that. Tell others about that. And when you're confronted with rebellion against the gospel that you're telling them, trust him and pray for them. 
That's what you're to do with that. That's how that applies to you. What if you're here today and you are in rebellion against Christ? What do I do with this? Number one, realize this. You have no hope in that rebellion. For you, it's eternal judgment. That's waiting for you. That's real. God's promised that. But, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because God's offered you the gracious, gracious alternative. Peace with him through his anointed, Jesus Christ. Cut off your sin today. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. But Christ is exceedingly worth it. Today, right now, this very second, right now where you sit, turn to him. Take refuge in him as master and savior. He will give you eternal life with himself. He will do it. He's promised it. He will make himself your greatest joy. And and in him, you will be blessed. Not judged. Blessed. Mercy, grace, forgiveness in Christ alone. And we're going to pray as we pray. Can the men come forward, please? Dear Lord, please put down rebellion even in my own heart. Thank you for providing a king for your people. God, we praise you for sending your son to be Messiah. Help us serve you, Lord, with reverential awe and with rejoicing. Father, thank you for giving refuge to those who trust in you. And we, we, we pray together, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Going to take communion today, and as a warning, Paul has let us know that communion is for believers, not unbelievers, and not for for believers who are practicing any kind of sin, lest they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So if if you're here and you're an unbeliever, don't worry about what anybody else thinks about you. It doesn't matter. Let the elements pass from you so that you don't incur judgment from God. Same thing if you are a disobedient believer right now. If you are a believer, please partake with joy and trembling. Amen.
we read from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. It says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to live a sinless life the king, the king who died on the cross, but the king who also rose three days later, bodily, was witnessed by 500 people, ascended to heaven, where he reigns and rules and sits at your right hand, interceding even for the saints. And we thank you that the promise that we have that all who are in you will be with you for eternity, and you will come back and reign and rule on this earth physically. We thank you for that. We look forward to that. We thank you for the new covenant by which you purchased us. Amen. I think uh, we're running a little bit late, so that'll, that'll be it. No closing hymns or anything.